Shabbat Shalom, everyone, and Mazel Tov. My, uh, I realized this week, this past week, that my children don't text me anymore. They aren't children, actually. They're my children. They're all adults, but they don't text anymore. They just send me TikTok clips. So one TikTok clip that I got this week was, I haven't even seen the show, to be honest with you, but it's a, uh, it's a new miniseries called The Shrink Next Door. And uh, Paul Rudd, who plays this Jewish psychologist, anyway, he gets an aliyah to the Torah. And he does exactly what Talia and Serena did for us this morning. He did the baruchu. He actually did it really, really well. And uh, it led me to wonder and ask myself, what are some of the most popular, well-known Jewish words that are universally known? Now, before I actually go about and try to answer it, I have to divorce myself from myself. I'm originally from New York, which is to say that almost everybody knows a fair amount of Jewish words. Uh, just recently, um, the American Secretary of Defense, Colin Powell, passed away. And uh, Colin Powell was noted in his obituary in the New York Times as being the only, the first American Secretary of Defense who spoke Yiddish. Now, as you know, he was an Af African-American. And the story of Colin Powell was fascinating because he grew up in the Bronx. And Colin Powell, his father, on Shabbat, on the Sabbath, worked in a synagogue helping turn on and off the lights, which the congregation wouldn't do because of the Sabbath observances. Colin Powell also became very close to some of the families in the congregation because he would go with his father on Saturday mornings to the shul, to the synagogue, and when his parents were out late because they worked two jobs, that Colin, then young Colin, would go to the, one of the apartments of his friends who were Jews, and he would often have dinner with them. And these kids, their parents, only spoke Yiddish to them. So Colin Powell famously, when he went to Israel, uh, when he met uh, a number of Israeli officials, he would always introduce and start talking to them in Yiddish. What he probably didn't realize is that many Israelis don't speak Yiddish, of course. <laughs> they speak Hebrew. But, okay, so I had to divorce myself from the New York persona where my Italian neighbors spoke better Yiddish than I did. Okay? I'm not joking. But thinking about the kinds of words that are so universally understood or known because of their... And in fact, they come from Jews. I asked myself, what, some, what are some of those words? It seems to me at the top of the list, and feel free to make your own list after Shabbat, you can email me with it. It seems to me at the top of the list would be the word Shabbat. Now, the word Shabbat is so ubiquitous, it's not even translated. It's transliterated. So in English, we call it Sabbath. Spanish, Italian, it's called Sabato, Sabatico. The fact of the matter is, no one bothers to translate the word Shabbat because everyone seems to understand what it is. It's kind of like when you ask for a Kleenex. Or a long time ago, they used to say, go make me a Xerox of this, because Xerox was the first, was the first company who invented making a photocopy. Everyone just, knows, everyone just knows what Shabbat, the Sabbath, is. Seems to me, next on the, on the hip parade, would be the word shalom. Lots of people know that word. And part of it, of course, of its impact, 
is the word shalom is also a loan word used in Arabic, salam. But the word shalom is fairly ubiquitous, and most people know it. Bizarre reality is, I mean, listen, I wear a kippah all the time, wherever I go in the city. And sometimes when I'm walking downtown, uptown, midtown, wherever it is, I will, someone will walk by me and say shalom. And they're not necessarily Jewish, but they're just being good people, kind people. Another word that strikes me as being really, really well-known is the word Israel. Israel is obviously a Hebrew word, but really well-known. What really kicked this off in my mind was in the past week, also on TV, was Steven Spielberg's movie called The Goonies. And in The Goonies, if you haven't seen it, you should. It's a cute movie. And there's one of the kids in the movie is a Jewish boy. And a very, very scary part of the movie, he starts saying, Baruch Ata Adonai. <laughs> he starts reciting a bracha, a blessing. And so what I would say to you is, is that certainly amongst Jews, one of the most well-known expressions is the beginning verses, or words, excuse me, of a blessing. The question, of course, is where does a blessing come from? The word baruch. The word baruch in Hebrew means a blessing. Before the girls read the Torah portion, the Haftorah, they began with the expression baruch ata. Before Jews eat food, we recite a blessing. Before we light candles over a Jewish holiday, we recite blessings. At all important moments in Jewish life, we recite a blessing. Some people say that the word baruch, which once again means blessing, comes from the word berech, which means a knee. And that's because the way that people would worship and give praise to God would be to bow. In other words, bend your knee. But the other idea that emerges from this, and I'm thinking of this in honor of Hanukkah, which is just around the corner, is that when you look at the formulation of how we recite a blessing, you got to pay attention and listen carefully to it. Because the blessing works like this, over the candles that we will light for Hanukkah in a very short time from now, next week. As you light your Hanukkah menorah, you will say, Baruch atah Adonai, blessed are you, O Lord our God, Asher kitshanu who commanded us to observe the lighting of the Hanukkah menorah. And the ancient rabbis asked the most obvious question on this, because the miracle of the story of Hanukkah does not take place when Moses is writing the Bible, the Torah. The story of Hanukkah takes place centuries after Moses dies centuries after the Torah has been written. And so to say that God commanded us to light the Hanukkah menorah, how could that be so? Because we know that Hanukkah is a rabbinic holiday. It doesn't come from the Torah, from the Bible, which we assume is the word of God. It comes by the, it comes by the spirit of people. And so the ancient rabbis asked that question. As they're bantering about, this is thousands of years ago, by the way, as they're bantering about trying to figure out what blessing they're going to create 
for the lighting of the Hanukkah menorah, one rabbi turns around and says, how can you say that this is what God commanded us to do? How can you say that? Because they know the truth. There's no way that God could have commanded that. And at the end of the long discussion, because this is rabbi, so it's a long discussion, one rabbi says this, Sha'al avicha v'yagedecha. The reason why we say that God commanded us to do this, even though it didn't come directly from God, the ancient rabbi says, you go ask your parents and grandparents, and they'll tell you why. I want to explain the answer with the story. Two years ago, I had the wonderful good fortune of having a mini sabbatical teaching young rabbinical students in Berlin and Germany. And uh, on this Shabbat's Torah portion, that's why it came to my mind, I was invited to speak in a synagogue in Berlin, um, in Kreuzberg, which is in the center of Berlin. It was, uh, Kreuzberg was a heavily, heavily dominated Jewish um, quarter of the city, um, before the war, obviously. And in the center of Kreuzberg, there is a a beautiful synagogue called the Frankenlofer Synagogue. And I was asked to attend on the Shabbat morning and then also speak from the pulpit and then give a class afterwards. And as I walked to the shul, then I walked into the shul, there was at the entrance the history of the place. I want to share it with you. The synagogue had been built um, at the beginning of the Weimar Republic, late 1800s, early, particularly early 1900s, if I'm correct. And it, it was a massive structure. There were actually two different buildings. One was the main sanctuary, which seated about 1,200 people. There was another wing, a separate building, that was only for uh, schooling, education for children, programs for young families and whatnot. It was packed all the time. When the Nazis, um, when, when the Nazis ascended to power, Starting in the 1938-1939, the Frankenlofer Synagogue had been used as a rounding up point to deport Jews. After all the Jews in Berlin had been deported out, the Nazis then used the synagogue as a storage house for horses and for ammunition. Because it was used for ammunition, and Berlin, if you didn't know, if you've never been there, Berlin was one of the most heavily bombed city in human history. Second only perhaps to Dresden. And what little was left of the synagogue was only the wing that had been used for education, for schooling, had a small sanctuary left. Anyways, the story runs like this. The Americans set up a provisional government in Berlin when the war is over, and the Frankenlofer synagogue is right on the Lanver River. And across the river is a set of apartment buildings. The American government, the army, had taken over those apartment buildings to house officers. And there was a Jewish lawyer who was working for the American military who's sitting there at his desk looking out the window and he's staring at this building and he's looking at the stained glass and he says, you know what? That looks like a synagogue. 
Anyways, he goes out of the building, crosses over the river, walks closer to the building, and he sees, even through the shattered and broken stained glass windows, that in fact it had been a shul. The next year and a half, he devotes his life, in addition to his legal work for the American military, to getting the Americans and other people to donate money to repair the synagogue, to bring it back to what it was before. And you could ask yourself, that over the course of that year and a half, certainly more than one person must have said to him, there are no Jews left in Europe. And if there are any Jews left in Europe, there are certainly no Jews left in Germany. And whichever ones may in fact still be here are on their way out. Why should we spend money to build a synagogue that no one will go to? It seems to me the miracle of Hanukkah is not the miracle with the oil, which we all know really well. It seems to me that the miracle of Hanukkah is not the miracle of a small band of Jews defeating the massive Greek army. We know that story too. It seems to me that the real miracle of Hanukkah is the undying, unceasing belief of Jews to believe that no matter how distant it may be, that redemption is never impossible. That the undying Jewish belief that no matter how bleak the moment may appear to us, that we have never, in the words of the partisan song, that we have never come to the end. That there will always be those who will come after us. And as I stood, Two years ago, on this Shabbat, in the Frankelofer Synagogue, there were over a hundred people there, young children, coming to a class and to pray on Shabbat morning. I realized how we see that truth over and over again. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Please rise, page three.